Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening, and welcome to the Hinckley Report. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Jay Evenson, columnist with the Deseret News, Kate Bradshaw, bountiful city councilwoman, and Ben Winslow, reporter with Fox 13 News. Thank you for being with us this evening. A lot of things happened in the state of Utah with the legislature, health departments. We've got a lot to get to today. I want to start with our legislature, Kate. Um, revenue numbers we're starting to get to take a look at. Do we really have $3 billion Apparently extra we do. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. Uh, you know, how the legislature is going to deal with this is going to be so interesting because we're not sure if this is sustainable or if this is all about people spending those stimulus checks, uh, people that are getting the, the, the uh, money for the child tax credits. Um, how long will that last? How long will we keep spending? So should we treat this as kind of like a one-time bonus to the state or should we count on it? But there's a lot of money and a lot of discussions about what we should do with it. Yeah, ben, ben, to put this in perspective, it's interesting, a 60% rise in personal income tax, 94% increase in corporate tax. So legislators are looking this, at this the way Kate's talking about, how do we look at the state of Utah going forward? Is this ongoing money? Is this one-time money? How do they spend it? They're going to be getting a, a lot of requests to spend money, uh, so many requests. But a lot of it uh, already, we are seeing signs that the legislature is looking at infrastructure improvements, looking at even tax cuts, uh, giving an income tax cut the Senate majority leader has proposed. And so they're saying things are looking so good, maybe it's time we give some money back. Uh, there's all these asks. We're going to see probably so many requests for money, everybody's wish list. And I think some people are still going to come into the legislature thinking it's Christmas and everybody's getting what they want. And they may still leave sorely disappointed because there are still a segment of lawmakers who want to hold on to this money, yes. who want to uh, exercise some fiscal prudence with this. So stay tuned. Uh, this, this laundry list is going to get longer for what people want and what they're actually going to get. That's absolutely right. J Jay, uh, the point that Ben just brought up is interesting. Uh, for a couple sessions now, our legislature has talked about potentially doing some kind of tax cut. We see these big revenues. It's not the first year we've had it. Last year we did as well. What are you hearing about that possibility and the likelihood of success? Well, you know, this is kind of like waking up in the morning and, and opening your bank app and seeing that you've suddenly got $2 million in there that you didn't know about, or in this case, $3 billion. Um, and your first thought is that there must be a mistake, right? And uh, Or that there's something unusual uh, that's causing this. And so, yes, they're going to be reluctant, but there's a lot of pressure uh, going to be put on them to return money to the people of the state of Utah. <clears throat> and you're hearing that from... Uh, a lot, a lot of uh, advocacy groups right now on, on the right. Uh, and so I, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure in that way. The, the other factor in this is inflation. And we've seen inflation now at about a 5.4% annual clip. And, and I think there's, uh, as Ben said, there's going to be some reluctance to uh, go too far uh, and, and maybe to a, a desire to treat this more like one-time money 
and wait another year and, and see if uh, if we still have these same revenues. Yeah, it does seem like that is the strategy right now as they look at the next legislative session. I, I want to talk about some bill files that are open, some things that we might see coming. Uh, ben, because you've covered this uh, a, a lot, we are seeing a death penalty bill eliminating uh, capital punishment in the state of Utah. It's not a new thing for us to see, but give us some perspective on what might be different this time. Well, this bill is different because it's repeal and replace. Uh, these bills have been run in the past, and they've never really gotten anywhere. There's been a lot of pushback to capital punishment repeal bills, um, even though you know there's arguments for why you should, about how long the length of appeals are, the costs associated with all of that, the fact that uh, victims' families wait decades to finally see a sentence carried out. But this year, this idea of repealing and replacing it, not with, uh, you know, we're, we're getting rid of capital punishment, but the idea is that you add instead an option of 45 years to life in prison. Now, that's in addition to the potential of life without parole and what is already in statute, which is 25 years to life in prison. And this is getting some momentum on Capitol Hill. We've seen uh, family members of some victims. I interviewed Sharon Wright Weeks, uh, the sister of Brenda Lafferty in one of Utah's most heinous murder cases who is also speaking out in support of this bill uh, because she said that she waited 37 years. Ron Lafferty died of natural causes on death row waiting to be executed. She supports this bill, this idea of a 45 to life. That could be a good carrot for some lawmakers who are still in favor of capital punishment. But we've also seen some lawmakers just simply change their minds and say, given what we've mm. seen, how long it takes, Maybe we go down this path. And the other thing that this bill does, I should point out, for the seven men who are still on death row right now, it does not commute their sentence. They still face the firing squad. So that's, they're, they're not exempted or they're not included in this repeal. Mm -hmm. They're just, they stay there under statute. But this thing, this is getting some interesting momentum. Okay, you had a chance to talk to Lowry Snow, Representative Lowry Snow, who is the one kind of the face of this right now. You've been on the Hill for many years. We've seen these bills come and go time and time again. Uh, what did he say about this to you? You know, what's interesting about um, having Representative Snow take on this issue is that early in his career, he was a prosecutor. Um, now he's in private practice. Um, he's one of the most respected legislators on the Hill on legal issues. He is known for being um, thoughtful, rational. He has a very calm demeanor, and he just he, he, tremendous respect, um, both chambers, both sides of the aisle. And because he's kind of gone through this process and has come to the conclusion that, um, you know, th this, this mm -hmm. justice delayed is justice denied, that the whipsawing of these families is so hard, he has, he has moved and evolved his position. And the, um, the combination of Lowry Snow as the primary sponsor and Dan McKay as the floor sponsor in the Senate, who has a, you know, a very different kind of uh, personality in, in the House, is, is known for being um, kind of uh, a very passionate sponsor mm -hmm. of bills, gets very excited about the bills he sponsors. Um, and so the combination of those two is a different kind of uh, recipe than we've seen to, right. uh, tried on this bill in the past. And it may just get us over that hurdle. And you're also seeing... Um, you know, the, the district attorneys, the counties are, are coming on board. Totally and so there's, there's a different kind of momentum this year that just might put it, put it over. And it's, and it's because I think of the, of the evidence, the costs, the families, all of those things um, where people might say, look, I'm morally okay with this, but 
we're, we're, we're not seeing the, what we ought to see in, in terms of closure to these cases. And so let's move in this different direction. And you're doing it with these, these really key thoughtful leaders that put this package together. Jay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think you can't overestimate the, uh, the county attorneys and particularly uh, David Levitt in Utah County. Um, you, currently, you've got uh, Jared Baum on trial for a heinous murder down there. And he's basically taken the death penalty uh, off the table there. Um, and, and the conservatives who support this are, are using kind of a different argument. They're saying, look, as conservatives, we have a healthy distrust of government. Uh, so why should we trust government with uh, the power to take people's lives if we believe governments are fallible? And we've seen, I think it's something like 185 death sentences overturned because of DNA evidence in this country. And so uh, that's a little bit different argument. And if it if it holds, you know, be, uh, Utah could uh, end up being a trendsetter among conservative states on this issue. Very interesting. We'll watch this one closely. This might be it. Our, our, our panel kind of thinks maybe so. It certainly has the chance. Okay. I think it's got the best chance it's had in, in a long time with, with this package of sponsors and this coalition behind it. Mm -hmm. Let's get to another committee hearing that happened this week. Ben, I think that you were there as our legislature was talking about a Supreme Court ruling that just came down, a Utah Supreme Court ruling about gender identity being listed on official public documents, on records, the requirement, you know, birth certificates, for example, start talking about driver's license, whether or not you need to put um, a, a sex or gender uh, designation on these documents. Talk about that because this, this is going to have some implications for this next session. Yeah, this is in response to a Utah Supreme Court ruling uh, dealing with transgender people and gender markers on birth certificates. Right now, um, or the way it was prior to the court ruling is, Utah law allowed for people to do this. People who wanted to change their uh, gender marker to match their identity had a process they could go through. You could petition the court to have it done and have your birth certificate amended and changed and all of that. The problem was one or two judges wouldn't do it. And it depended on if you rolled the dice and you got this particular judge who wouldn't do it. So the case went all the way to the Supreme Court because two people were denied and they sued to challenge this. And the court said, no, we have the authority to do this and there should be a uniform policy. So the court ruled in favor of allowing for this process. Now there's some exemptions, you can't have it for fraud. You have to have proof that you've been going through some of these therapies to transition. Mm -hmm. But the legislature in light of this ruling held a hearing to decide, do we need to mess with this? And that gave some members of the committee a lot of heartburn. Some are saying, look, the court ruled, they set a policy, it's a uniform policy, why do we need to touch this? Others are questioning if they need to weigh in. Then there was also just kind of this philosophical discussion of, do birth certificates you need to even have a gender marker or a sex marker on them? And that was its own debate. Driver license division says, well, we do need them for purposes of federal, some federal requirements that we have. We don't even know if there's really going to be a bill on this. There seems to be an appetite among some lawmakers to maybe look at whether they need to create some kind of a policy or set some kind of a statute. However, uh, there was a lot of lawmakers who said, look, the court ruled. It took a number of years. Leave it alone. Yeah, so, but Kate, but Merrill Nelson had some comments about it. Has not left off the table some kind of legislation to get to this thing. Because, and, and what many were talking about was what Ben just said, is the, the, Supreme, the Utah Supreme Court decision did lay out pretty clear infrastructure. You know, it's it's a fraught issue at the at the state capitol, and it'll likely bring in some of the other issues last year that were also um, difficult in the same area. For instance, transgender athletes. Um, sometimes you have to wonder whether um, that forum 
helps us uh, have a thoughtful discussion about these, mm -hmm. these issues, whether they're harmful or helpful to people that are transgender and to transgender youth um, versus allowing that court decision to stand. I think it is likely, um, given the diversity of opinions in the 104 Utah legislators, that there will be some type of a bill file. And hopefully that if they choose to engage in that discussion, they can do it in this, in, in this thoughtful, respectful way that will um, still make sure that those people that are transgender feel um, understood, heard, respected, loved, and part of our, you know, mm -hmm. valued part of our community. Mm -hmm. I think we're gonna keep hearing this discussion for a little while, with, with through legislation or otherwise. Uh, Jay, uh, I want to talk about some things uh, that are kind of still brewing in the state of Utah. Uh, in our program last week, we talked about this vaccine mandate from the president of the United States. Reactions from the state of Utah, we talked a little bit, but we're seeing even more over this past week from our governor to our legislature to our attorney general. To, uh, explain a couple of those things that are happening right now and some of those moving parts. Well, I think the attorney general is getting ready to join with 23 other states in a lawsuit to try to overturn or to challenge uh, the president's mandate. And um, yesterday, um, uh, we published an op-ed by the Senate president and the Speaker of the House saying that they're urging Governor Cox to uh, stand firm and not to give in to this. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, this is a, a rule that's coming through OSHA and is going direct to, um, to uh, businesses. So uh, it makes it kind of hard for the state to, to stand in the way of that. The lawsuit is the best chance. Uh, and now you've got almost half the states that are, uh, that are uh, opposing this or, or going in on a lawsuit. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, the courts have ruled pretty consistently over the last century that states do have the power to issue vaccine mandates, but they've never ruled on whether the federal government does. And that's the issue here. And I, I would look for a, a, a fairly a, a quick decision from the Supreme Court, hopefully, on this. Yeah, so, so interesting. Uh, so, so, Kate, our legislature is looking at this and um, they have signed this letter. It's interesting. Uh, you're an elected official. You represent people and businesses also. It was interesting in the letter that was sent to the president from these uh, attorneys general. And it was something, one of the big arguments was apart from it's illegal, which was their key point. The other one was it actually hurts the workforce. It makes us less likely to open up our businesses than it does to close them. You know, it I think elected officials at every level, whether you serve in local government or in the state legislature, you're hearing a lot from residents about vaccines and about masks. Um, I certainly do, even though authorities are fairly limited at the, yeah. at the, at the city council level. Um, it's interesting because, you know, we've, we've, you've kind of reached, I think, a point where um, the people that have wanted to get a vaccine and that are, are trusting in that science have done that. And those that don't are, we're kind of locked in. Only when we lower the age limit might we see a big... Um, uptick of, of, of new uh, individuals that want to get a vaccine. The hard part is, is while we're caught between what the Biden administration may do via this OSHA path, is the businesses who, who want to comply. I, I was with um, uh, some clients in the construction trades where OSHA inspections are common, who were saying, should we move and make all of our plans to be prepared because we'll have inspectors on our sites for other types mm -hmm. of OSHA requirements? Or should we let this court process play out? And, you know, one of the things businesses like and crave is that certainty. Tell us the rules we need to play by, we'll play by them. And right now they're feeling caught in between and anything that makes commerce feel uncertain sometimes pushes down those, those effects of, of the ability for people to feel comfortable doing business. 
you know, working and spending capital. And we mm -hmm. want people to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And Ben, some of these businesses are even saying, uh, I'm having a hard time, hard enough time finding workers. We're like 2.7% unemployment in the state of Utah. 2.6 today. <laughs> wow, and it keeps getting lower. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a tricky situation here because there, if people leave, you know, who do you find to fill them? And that was one thing a group that uh, really opposes the mandates uh, kind of packed a legislative committee room this week yeah. to say is that we don't think we think that you should run a bill. They asked the legislature to actually run a bill to block businesses from mandating vaccines because they worried about the impact on the economy, even though they said it would impact small businesses more. And this rule, it should be pointed out, doesn't apply to businesses with less than 100 employees. But this is something that even I think lawmakers are going to have a lot of heartburn about, because on the one hand, they support the idea of businesses being able to make these decisions for themselves. But where it gets complicated is when the federal government says, well, we're going to impose this on businesses to have them enforce this or mm -hmm. make this decision. And so it's kind of caught some lawmakers in a bit of a quandary here because the, the Cox administration, for example, has been supportive of the idea of businesses mandating this, making this decision to have their employees vaccinated. But do you need the federal government to make the business mandate it? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird situation. So I want to pick up on this idea uh, for, for you, Jay, on this quandary for these elected officials, because you were right, and that's what some, many of them are in. Uh, the Desert News and the Hinckley Institute uh, did, a, did a poll recently to try to get to issues surrounding these mask requirements. And this is a question that you wrote, Jay, so I want to ask you about this, because uh, the question we asked, asked Utahns was, uh, do they support the law that was passed restricting local government's power to enact mask mandates. And it gets to this quandary idea, what are elected officials to do? Because Jay is so interesting, 44% uh, of Utahns approved of that uh, of that order, uh, restricting that law, restricting governments, but 43% uh, of them uh, said that they were, dis they disapproved of it. Let's, I think we lost Jay for just a moment, but uh, Kate, you've seen this poll as well. What is an elected official supposed to do when 43% and 44% of what you've got? And this is such a major decision. It is. An, it, 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 it shows exactly what elected officials have been dealing with at all levels for the last, you know, over a year and a half, where you've got um, kind of a high, highly polarized electorate mm -hmm. and very uh, different positions and deeply and viscerally held positions. Um, and so it, it, it has made for some, you know, tension in trying to chart that best path forward. Um, you know, uh, elected officials, I, I, I'm a part-time elected official, um, and I don't have a healthcare background. Mm -hmm. So having to, to make weighty decisions on some of those issues um, are, are really tough, given that my background is in a, in a whole different yeah. area due to my day job and life experiences. And, um, you're being bombarded with information. Right. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely made uh, um, elected officials have to like, dig deep into their networks to try and mm -hmm. get good information. Well, the policy decision to be made when you don't even have 50% on either side is something else. Uh, but Jay uh, asked, went to another question that we were looking at here too, which is, Ben, uh, who should be making these decisions? And so that's what's interesting. So you've got 43% uh, disapprove, 44% approve of these, these restrictions. But we asked them, who do we think should be making these decisions? And it's interesting, people did not think it should be elected officials. In fact, 26% of Utah said it should be a state health department. 27% said it should be a local health department. And this is the situation if you, well, this is the situation is the fact is the legislature has created a path 
and this is how it's going to be. This is, you get your approval, or the health department can make a recommendation, but then you have a check and a balance. The argument that the legislature made was that we should not have unelected officials making these decisions, that it should have a check and balance, and that's the mm -hmm. system that they've created, and we've seen it play out to some people's satisfaction and to others' dissatisfaction. And uh, this is the quandary, sort mm -hmm. of, if you are also an elected official, you are damned if you do and you are damned if you don't. Uh -huh. With when, when the community, as Kate said, is this this divided on this. Mm -hmm. Jay, put these two questions into context for us about the approval for the mask requirement and also who Utahns feel should be making these decisions. I, I heard part of your question, uh, Jason. I think you're talking about uh, who should be making the decision. The interesting thing to me is that um, only 8% thought the state legislature and 8% thought the governor should make that decision. And when you break that out by uh, politics, uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats, it's almost uh, virtually the same. Um, so um, I, and I think, and I, I'm sorry. I think we're having some technical difficulties with Jay, uh, but he's explaining that difficulty for these elected officials for sure. Can't wait to see what they decide to do because it's no clear marker for them. I know these legislators are looking at these results saying, well, I think I made the right decision. And there certainly isn't a majority saying that I didn't, uh, which is an interesting position, particularly when you are an elected official. Uh, I'll tell you what else is coming over the next couple of weeks, redistricting, all right? So I'm just gonna get your, your flavor, all right? <laughs> so yeah, so I always ask the question, are, are you wearing a, a donut scarf or a you know, pizza tie? You know, that's what the legislature keeps saying about this, is how are we going to carve up the state of Utah? Kate, what are we looking at? The redistricting commission is starting to put some maps together. Are we going to see a change, a change of approach where we're gonna say, we're not just gonna split the whole state up like a pizza, we're gonna create a donut around Salt Lake City, Salt Lake County maybe, and go from there? I think we're early in the process. You know, we got the data really late. And so the legislature is on a, uh, a very fast path to have these maps ready by November for a vote. Um, you have the independent process playing out. You've got the legislative process playing out. Um, you know, our growth patterns are interesting. Um, you still have our, you know, our blue dot kind of around <laughs> yes. Salt Lake City. Um, you've got tremendous growth in Utah County. Um, it's hard to draw. It's, it's very easy to play with the computer modeling and draw one or two or three perfect Did districts. Did you do one? Have you drawn a map? I, I, have, I have started on one, okay. um, in part because I live in Davis County and I found it frustrating that my county is divided between mm -hmm. um, two congressional districts. Uh, but it's, it is actually harder to, to play with all the numbers. You know, I think given the population of Salt Lake, you will see it fall within a couple uh, districts. Um, I, I don't know that, the, that they will be able to resist um, at least applying, uh, you know, some type of a division that may look a little pizza-ish. Mm -hmm. I don't think you'll ever see Salt Lake County be a, a stronghold for uh, Democrats or for anybody else, really. Mm -hmm. uh, the population, the way that it is, it's probably gonna be split up no matter what because of a balance. You have to have that balance of rural and urban interests, but you also have to have these thresholds that the legislature, the committee mm -hmm. that makes the decision has to consider. The Independent Redistricting Commission can make recommendations, but at the end of the day, it's the legislature that's gonna have the final say, mm -hmm. which is why all of this is incredibly important and why drawing maps is incredibly important, uh -huh. why people need to get involved in this. Um, but there are some, there are still some rules that they want in place of this, this population threshold. And mm -hmm. rural Utah can't have its own district because they don't have the population. Mm -hmm. So you've got to get it from somewhere. And that's Utah County, Davis County, 
Salt Lake County. Yeah. The, the three counties that seem to be growing the quickest in the state of Utah. Are you hearing any push from the legislature, anything in kind of behind the scenes about just just adjusting some of these boundaries, particularly when it comes to a couple of our congressional districts like the fourth? What are you hearing about that? It's going to be, the boundaries will shift just as a nature of the population. How competitive it ultimately becomes is a, a different question really than, than just the pure numbers. Uh, but this is going to be interesting, and I'm hearing that a lot of frustration is going to be with the House and Senate boundaries for state House and state Senate, mm -hmm. too, because those are going to be shifting, and it's going to be interesting to see if everybody keeps their seats or if you consider incumbency, if you don't consider incumbency, and who represents what at the end of the day. Yeah, and I'm curious what that... Oh, go ahead, Kate. I was going to say, that's an interesting layer on the maps, which the public can play with. They can play with the same mapping software to build congressional or school board or legislative districts that the legislators and the independent commissioner are using. Um, there are some filters you can apply, and one of those filters is whether you, whether you turn on, whether the, whether you see where the incumbents are mm -hmm. or aren't in you know, the different flavors of, of filters you can apply to your maps and in, in the tools the software gives you to help build. And that... That is an interesting thing to think about. How should incumbency matter? Should it not? I yeah, don't know. It does play into it. And I just want to add one more factor and see what you say as an elected official, too. Some of us watch the Cook Political Report, shows kind of how far a district leans to, to the right or to the left. In Utah, all four of those congressional districts lean to the right. But what's interesting is the Cook Political, Political Report said they give no congressional district in Utah a, a chance of, of changing, no or minimal risk is the change, in spite of the fact that we're going through redistricting? You know, we have we have the four seats. We didn't grow enough to get another another seat. Um, because of the way our population is concentrated and the way you have to include those rural areas, it is, you have to do, to draw some lines some, somewhere. And so um, it, it's, it is more likely they will draw them, I think, in, in favor of, of solidly Republican seats than in than a, a standalone Democratic seat, in part because there's just more people that would fall and more um, geographic territory that would fall on that conservative end of the spectrum. So if you were looking at, you know, the different ways you could roll that dice, it comes up more Republican more times. Okay. We'll watch this one closely. I can't wait to see these lines. Submit your maps. Can't wait to see them. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.